For March 18th, 2019, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 559, Hamburg. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are like your smart, funny friends from the internet. We're never happier than when we uh, watch, listen to, read, enjoy, experience, contemplate the things that interest us, and then gather together to talk about them. Uh, I'm Matt Rather. I am here with my fellow overthinkers, Pete Fenzel. Hello, Pete. Hey, Matt. And Mark Lee. Hello, Mark. Hello, Matthew. And one of the best things uh, about the global community of overthinkers that we have uh, gathered around us over the years that we have engendered on this podcast, uh, a um, you know that that reaches all the way from I've gotten uh, letters from Australia, I've gotten letters from Georgia, not the U.S. state of Georgia, the former Soviet Republic, Georgia, that uh, where where someone says that they <laughs> that our podcast gets them in trouble because they laugh when. And listening to it, and that sort of thing is not done in a former socialist, uh, former socialist republic. Um, laughing, walking down the street. The, the the one of the greatest things about this um, global community that has grown up around the show in the ten or eleven years that we've been doing it is oh god, hold on, stop, stop, and consider that for a minute. Ten or eleven years. Uh, the you know if. Uh, the the kind of if this podcast were a baby it would be you know just about to to hit puberty and start throwing tantrums um i mean start throwing adolescent tantrums not uh, not childish tantrums which were the early episodes and if you have listened back to all of them i'm sure you can attest to that one of the greatest things about this community is that it's not a one-way conversation with us that in the show notes on every episode there's a place where people can comment people also used to use the uh the email podcast at overthinkingit.com or the uh the podcast voicemail which still exists i keep google keeps threatening to turn it off and I send one sad and lonely text message to myself on this uh, Google Voice number 203-285-6401. Um, I forget whether that's actually the right one. Uh, that uh, people write back and comment on the podcast and you know, sometimes get into conversations in each other in the threads on the comments on the show notes pages. And we always, a, a feature of this podcast is that we always promise to do do listener feedback, and then I uh, always run out of time. Um, so my mouth writes checks that my cast can't cash. And uh, we're going to rectify that today, aren't we, guys, with a whole... Uh, a whole episode of listener feedback with fantastic topics brought up by listeners, a grab bag uh, of different things, and our responses, our comments, our ruminations on the things that you, the audience, have written. So thank you for uh, writing in. If you'd like to write in for this episode, you can go to overthinkingit.com slash OTIP559. OTIP559. Nine, and you'll find the show notes and a place to comment there. Let's jump in. I think where we left off was uh, episode 553, which was our Super Bowl episode. And Mark, no relation, 
uh, when we were talking, when I, I think I was complaining, oh, it was the, this was the one, Pete, that you and I did, uh, and we just couldn't get the, the, internet connection to work and so we ended up using the uh, plain old telephone kind of system uh which was um somewhat degraded in terms of sound quality but at least it was reliable uh and i complained that in 10 years no one has come up th- with anything better than skype um and uh and skype is from time to time terrible the uh you know when it when it works you don't notice it and when you notice it it's terrible mark writes in to say have you tried discord lately i found it much better than skype zoom adobe uh and so forth guys have you tried discord lately it seems it seems like the entire internet is trying discord out lately am i right huh Oh, it's because it's true. Yeah, yeah. civic discourse no. has been degraded uh, to a point where we can't run a country anymore, or a world, <laughs> or a small town, or a family, a small town. Uh, I, I have not tried Discord myself, but uh, I am close enough to the various sorts of gamers circles to have uh, been involved with it. Uh, you know, I've been involved with communities that use it and have it suggested to me that I should use it. But I have not taken the plunge to actually trying it. But this comment from a user Mark, different Mark, leads me to think I should finally give it a shot. Uh, I remember I did at one point set up an overthinking it Steam community, which I have based in the nation of Georgia as a joke, which probably wasn't wise because it makes it harder to find in searches, I think. But um, And I haven't checked it in a very long time. So if you're a member of the overthinking it Steam community, God bless you. Uh, but maybe it's time to go check out and get a Discord going. Uh, so I'll go investigate that and see if it's worth our time. Now we talk about this. I think I actually have tried Discord, and it was actually in the context of overthinking it. I put out a call on the internet to for some people to join me for some multiplayer X-wing versus Tie Fighter. Keep in oh, mind, this yeah. is like a decade plus old uh, Star Wars flight simulator game, and I, I could be wrong, but I think we set up a Discord uh, so that we could voice chat amongst ourselves while we were shooting each other down in X-wings and Tie Fighters. Uh, that was super fun. It was also an incredible logistical feat to get that up and running, which is why we haven't done it again. Um, but uh, yeah, that was that. I would love. Uh, I would love to do that again and if anybody else wants to, to do the legwork of organizing that then uh, i'd be up for joining yeah um i mean i i've tried discord because i support i patreon support a podcast that um uses a, a discord for its uh subscribers um it's one of the perks that they get i mean i don't know i wouldn't be i wouldn't be adverse to doing that for overthinking it members uh speaking of which we thank our members for supporting this podcast with a uh a contribution of five dollars a month which gets you uh a whole bunch of extra audio from our digital library including uh the overview our series of alternative commentaries on the movies you love and we love uh the uh book club on 1984 a sadly timely book when we recorded that uh, book club, and a uh, semi-weekly, or I shouldn't say semi-weekly, that means twice every week, doesn't it? A uh, An occasional uh, question of the week that we record before we record the normal, uh, the regular episode that is available only to our members in the digital library. So uh, if you'd like to add a Discord uh, online community to that, I don't know, write, write in, podcastedoverthinking.com, let me know. And uh, that is definitely something that we could uh, think about getting together. 
That's that's interesting. I mean, so and and uh, so I've been on it. I find it like Twitch or Vine or really anything for anyone younger than me. I find it alienating and uh, therefore like invalid and bad. So you know, but uh, hey, we'll do it for our members if you want it. I I also have tried every other god awful um, meeting platform. Uh, like uh, Zoom, Adobe, uh, uh, join me. I don't know. To, to shout, shout out some some meeting platforms that that you've used. Yammer. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, Skype for business, which is like Skype but worse. Jive. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the Adobe one. Join me. Google Hangouts mm-hmm. for sure. Telepresence. Have you done Cisco telepresence? Oh, no. Is that the one with the big wall, the big video wall? Yeah, yeah. You see other people life-size from you across the table. It is a delight, definitely. Um, Speaking of the future, John C. in episode 553 says uh, he's talking about automation and automation in Super Bowl commercials. And he gets hits a a point that I feel like I hear a lot these days, which is that – in just a few decades, we went from there being from despairing over the loss of menial jobs and apparent disinterest in making the economy work uh, without forcing people to do useless jobs. I guess I just keep needing to remind myself that our parents were the generation that were promised futures with flying cars and household robots, whereas we were promised corporate-dominated cyberpunk nonsense. Uh, by the way, I hope you read my new manga, uh, Corporate Dominated Cyberpunk Nonsense, which we'll be <laughs> releasing under the uh, Square Enix label in 2019, later 2019. Uh, yeah, I mean... I suppose. Were you promised? Do you feel like you were promised corporate-dominated cyberpunk nonsense? I don't know. Because if, if I don't get it, I don't feel like I'm going to be disappointed. I mean, I mean, to be clear, the prior generation being promised, uh, what do we say, flying cars and household robots, that's that's the Jetsons, right? Like yeah. uh, a life of leisure um, that has been enabled by amazing technology. He's on to um, go work at the, at the Sprockets company, right? I mean, was that really working? <laughs> like, let's be honest here. <laughs> Fair enough. Now we're going to cast aspersions on the personal character of George Jetson. So yeah, he's, he's working. Yeah. He's working. You know, Spacely. Uh, Mister Mister Spacely helps him with self actualization. You know, it's not just. Uh, it's not just um, working to living to live. Uh, working to live. He's living to work. You know, that's uh, or the other way. Uh, the other way around. I forget which the bad one is, and that probably tells you something about the economy that I can find myself in. But I just want to point out that we have talked about this with uh, Manu. On uh, about the uh, economics of a Star Trek like universe, like what happens when you have abundant energy, abundant and and more or less side effect free uh, energy, and can you know just build uh, you know can just kind of fabricate anything you want. What what do you do? Uh, and you know there there is an answer to that when the twentieth century people show up in Star Trek uh, land, and this is the second time. The, the Star Trek The Next Generation has come up today, huh? It's, it must be on my brain. The first time was in the question of the week, which our members can get at it in the digital library. Um, the uh, the what do you what do you do? How do you uh, how do you know how do you know if you've won? Yeah, you know, says the guy from the 20th century. How do you know if you've beaten your neighbors? And Picard t- tells him that we're out to better ourselves, better 
ourselves and like uh, to self self actualize rather than being um, you know rather than being uh, in it to win some sort of arbitrary competition that has to do with you know the amount of currency that you accumulate over the course of over the course of your life. Um, Speaking of self improvement, yeah. uh, Durdrum took a step in episode five hundred fifty four about the fire festival to improve all of us a little bit, which I believe was a step that we all suggested on the podcast that you not do, which was Durdrum has posted to the comment thread uh, a definition of snowballing from the lexical authority that is Cosmopolitan magazine. So thank you to Durdrum for uh, making us all remind ourselves that uh, ignorance is not bliss. It is just ignorance. So thank you for that. that. Do you feel like, like Cosmopolitan magazine is a kind of kinder, gentler urban dictionary? I, I, I choose to think of it as a uh, crueler and nastier Oxford English dictionary. Is it a, is it a, a young urban professional dictionary? <laughs> yes, it is. It is uh, what it's. It's um, Miriam Webster. Miriam, uh, dad from Webster. Uh, I don't know what other character from Webster could hang out with Miriam and create a, a dirty dictionary. I'm not sure, but uh, I love the written word. So there you go. <laughs> Uh, three act to structure in that um, in that same comment thread writes back: Is it no longer false advertising if the secret never directly tells people that their method spontaneously generates money? Uh, we we talked about sort of manifesting in that in that episode, and the secret is the is the you know sort of is the think and grow rich uh, for Oprah's audience, and I, yeah, I don't know. Is it? I mean, does it promise that that you'll make money? I whenever I, th- I hear that, I always think of that episode of. Uh, that episode of The Simpsons where Bart raises an army of kids to combat neighborhood bullies. And uh, he says to his troops as they're assembled, I can't promise you victory. I can't promise you good times. And they all groan and walk away. And he gets panicked and he says, okay, okay, I promise you victory. I promise you good times. And... Uh, you know, and uh, and the 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 rest is is history. Um, hey Matt, yeah. more people will come if we say we have punch and pie. <laughs> <laughs> we were to understand that there would be punch and pie. Um, yeah, I mean, is it? I don't know. Do you, have you guys either read The Secret? Because my I have like a cocktail party index card on The Secret as a as a joke. So I don't know if there's anything remotely valuable or anything uh, to the whole to the whole enterprise. No, I haven't read it. Is it the sort of thing where if you've read it, you have to keep it a secret and you can't tell other people about it? Yeah, probably. All the secrets. I did recently start – I started listening to Jen Sincero's You Are a Badass uh, uh, through the Libby app, which is a wonderful app where you can get stuff from your local library. Recently, I didn't like the book. It was not what I expected. Uh, It definitely was much more in the realm of this whole uh, self-help genre of like positive thinking and uh, it's sort of semi-spirituality than I expected the book to be. And coming right to that from Daniel Kahneman was a big jump. But it does make me wonder what is actually happening when you are being optimistic about your future? Like what is going on cognitively in your brain? Because uh, in the Daniel Kahneman book that I've talked about for the last like multiple podcasts, it's like optimism is presented as this, as this fundamentally irrational attitude that causes a whole lot of problems, but is also necessary for the economy to function. So because uh, otherwise nobody <laughs> would everyone knew how unlikely your venture was to pan out. Nobody would take risks. Uh, and so um, 
I wonder whether the situation with things like the secret or I'm even thinking about stuff like what the rules of power or anything that tells you to not hang out with people who are downers, which is a lot of weird, nasty self-help is like, get rid of all the people in your life that are bringing you down and only listen to people who affirm you and feel good. And it's like, well, yeah, if you do that, you're only going to get information that you're doing well. And that will lead you to think that you're only doing well. And I guess if once you think that it'll be difficult for you to measure, you know, to sort of think otherwise. And, and in what way does that affect the outcomes? Really? Does it mean that you wouldn't arrive at positive outcomes if you didn't think that you were going to work because you wouldn't take the risk? And then you get confirmation bias when it goes well. Uh, I'm just not I'm just not clear about that last step between like getting raring to go, feeling really positive about yourself, looking around your life and only recognizing the good things. And then what happens? Uh, I mean, I don't know. I, I, maybe it's because I've never really reached that mentality that I don't understand how to leap from it into actual money. I mean, I think it's a matter of of actual self-help, right? The You can't listen to the critics when they like you and not the critics when they hate you, right? Like, um, it's, uh, I forget who this is, but it's a sort of classical, classical author who's like, uh, do you desire these men's good opinion? Are these not the same men whom yesterday you said were charlatans and fools? Do you then desire the good opinion of charlatans and fools? Right. And like, this is a thing in, in acting that you sort of, you got to come down on a side of very quickly of like reading your own reviews, you know, are you going to read what people write about you in, you know, in reviews of the work that you do? Um, my answer is absolutely not. Uh, <laughs> you Excellent. Do not read those. They give you, I mean, a theater, a professional theater will give you a packet of the reviews at the end of the at the end of the run. You give them to your rep or to your, you know, girlfriend or, what, you know, whatever, someone else who's not you who can excerpt the bits that will be useful for marketing you. And the rest, you know, you put in some, I mean, in my case, in some like keepsakes box to never, ever be opened again, uh, like like most of my keepsakes boxes. But the, the you know, you can't you, you can't sort of sustain a position where they only have a brain in their head if they if they like you or agree with you and they don't have a brain in their head if they don't so you know you, you have to uh not only cut the the negative nellies out of your life you have to cut the positive patricks out of your life as well and you can't have any friends is really the only <laughs> the only way to a happy life mm-hmm. and i think given what neuroscience tells us about how hard Harmful social connection is to your uh, <laughs> to your mental state. The wisdom of this position becomes self evident. Yeah, is your is your favorite cognitive scientist like Clint Eastwood? Is this like a white snake? Here I go again on my own, uh, clinically and peer reviewed, uh, definitively as the only way to proceed. <laughs> the, <laughs> Not life advice, people. It's just the situation. <laughs> so it's like published a, in, a, in a psychological journal that the cover is like pure acid washed white denim. Yeah. I'm just like that's like such a great thing to hold in the hands. Um, speaking of folks who. Um, are optimists to the point of delusional. Um, on this episode, we're talking about the Fire Fest and it, one of it, the main perpetrators of the fraud, Jaw Rule. So our own Ben Adams uh, writes in and says that uh, your question about how the experts at the music festival trade conference should have reacted to uh, his outlands proposal is a good illustration of an asymmetry that's kind of the flip side of the Dunning-Kruger effect. Really smart experts know they might be wrong, so when they hear something like the Fire Festival, they say, that sounds impossible, but maybe they know something I don't. And he goes on to connect that to Theranos, and uh, that 
um, that the whole uh, scam where that wasn't possible, but people wanted it in on it um, uh, because they didn't want to be uh, wrong and had that sort of fear of missing out. Does that help uh, kind of uh, uncode like what um, uh, what a good way is to think of a positive versus negative? I mean, the, the interesting the interesting thing here is that, like, what he says, that sounds impossible, but maybe that they know something I don't. And the thing with Theranos is that, like, a lot of people from, like, fancy venture capital firms, people who should have done the legwork uh, but got sort of duped um, – were signed on. So there was this very high status social proof all around uh all around the sales pitch that the charlatans were making about the the you know impossible kind of vaporware fraudulent product that they were selling whether it was you know a a, a blood science the, you know a medical device or a uh music festival right mm-hmm. um a rhythmic device <laughs> but well, the, might uh, refer to it as a blood sugar sex magic yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this particular sort of positive thinking right so that that it's um there's a there's like a snowball that happens or there's a tipping point or there's a don't uh, look up snowballing <laughs> <laughs> um there's a tipping point where like maybe the first credible person is hard to dupe but they become uh easier to dupe in direct proportion to the number that you you already have duped right and this is the this is sort of the snowball effect how your thing can grow uh even even if the core of it is kind of hollow mm. yeah uh, ben also uh leads us with yet another star trek the next generation reference ja rule at the music festival trade conference when the walls fell <laughs> I mean, to that point, right, substantively, uh, Firefest has become this linguistic shorthand for all sorts of different frauds. Um, without getting too much into it, uh, the recent college admission scandal has been referred to as a sort of Firefest type uh, situation. And instantly people know what you're talking about. And uh, that just kind of further enforces the, the power of metaphor and shorthand in language that um, it quickly communicates a lot of complex ideas and it reinforces social bonds for those that understand it. Of course, I, yeah. confuses the hell out of people who don't understand it. Well, sure. I mean, it's 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 funny. We went to to one of the colleges uh, under you know that that got wrapped up in this thing, and I, among a lot of our classmates, the reaction was like, "Do these people not understand? I mean, all these outraged people, do they not understand how college admissions uh, works?" But I will say this about the the college admission thing: um, this scam was successful. It wasn't the Firefest in that they actually did <laughs> deliver. <laughs> <laughs> they did deliver butts to seats in college uh until the the you know kind of central um guy at the 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 middle of this whole thing in order to you know decided to cooperate with prosecutors when he was found out in order to get leniency for himself so i think really the lesson here is snitches get stitches <laughs> <laughs> no, here's what I would say to compare the college admission scandal to the fire festival. The difference is that the fire fest fire was a company that was making like a rental service for hiring celebrities, right? For like brief appearances. And they came up with the idea of the fire festival. And then the fire festival just kind of ran out of control and eclipsed the goal of what they were trying to accomplish. And the big difference is that I think when you look at the college cheating scandal, it's not like, 
you know, somebody sits down and it's like, how can I pay a soccer coach four hundred thousand dollars? Right. It's not like they came up with this idea of issuing these big bribes. It's that they have the goals. And then what, what I'm saying is that I don't I think that an important way to look at the college admissions uh, scandal is that this isn't the places where people's character failed. These are the vulnerabilities in the system. Right. It's like the fact that it is heavily rooted in athletics should not necessarily indicate that athletics people are less ethical than non-athletics people, but rather that athletics is a point of potential failure and exploitation in the way that college admissions is organized. Same with standardized testing. Right. Like if you find that the really effective cheaters are using the standardized test to cheat. I think what this doesn't tell it doesn't tell you, oh, no, nobody respects standardized tests anymore. It tells you that there's something in the way that the standardized test is organized that is providing an exploit that is allowing uh, people to cheat at it. Uh, and so if you were to look at the perspective of what would I want to do to prevent this from happening in the future? Yes, part of it is indoctrinate people around you with a better sense of mutual responsibility and superior kind of ethical sense, uh, uh, but also close the loopholes where you find them and seek out the weaknesses in the system and shore them up. But that's uh, I mean, that's a, it's a never ending thing. You're sort of bailing. You're always bailing water out of that system. Yeah. I mean, it's called being a job creator, Matt. It's called being a job creator. <laughs> the work never stops. Wait, the, the, haven't like deans or like academic administrative personnel outpaced the growth of actual teachers or students by like 50 times in academic hiring over the last well, apparently years. they apparently they've been busy with other things and not with this <laughs> well, maybe they should run a giant music festival in the bahamas if they got so much free time so. i mean apparently it's the easiest thing in the world to run a giant music festival into in the bahamas speaking of things that seemed like they were going to be the easiest thing in the world but weren't we did a podcast about the lego movie sequel Wait, which part was supposed to be easy but wasn't uh doing a podcast about the lego movie sequel or the lego movie sequel itself you know i was talking about the former but let's just say the latter too just for kicks but the uh, <laughs> all you had to do was catch the ca- same creative spark catch the same lightning in a bottle that you did and the difference between the lego movie one and lego movie two is the difference between lightning and a lightning bug <laughs> there you go. But we did get some good comments on it. Leet Minion left us quite a few comments, which I did appreciate. Uh, we have, She did, uh, he or she, or they, uh, did uh, correct us in the sense that uh, letting us know that Duplo and Lego are, in fact, compatible. So if you were concerned that Duplo and Lego are not compatible, they are. And, in fact, Duplo even emphasizes that Duplo is Lego and gave us a couple of different interpretations of different parts of the Lego movie, which I thought were pretty interesting. And uh, one was that the relationship between the brother and the sister in Lego movie two, where the brother doesn't want the sister messing with his stuff is very similar to the relationship between the father and the son in Lego movie one, where the father doesn't want the son uh, messing with his stuff. So really what we're saying is I learned it from you, dad. I learned it from watching you. (laughs) Sadly, we never get that scene in the Lego movie two, because it is of course, because they couldn't get Will Ferrell to do more than scream into a voiceover box from another room for like five seconds. But uh, I don't know. Any other comments? We got a whole bunch of comments from the Lego movie, too, here. Uh, and I don't think we're going to do a whole second podcast on it. But uh, was anything else in the comments from either Leap Minion or maybe from Andy or John or or Clay, like jumping out to you guys? Well, this I mean, I feel like there's a great there's a great. Well, actually, 
here from Andy B. He writes, well, actually, since the first Lego movie, since the first Lego movie, uh, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles license switched from Lego to Mega Constructs, nay, I believe Mega it's Block. Constructs. Constructs. I think the emphasis on the second <laughs> syllable there, Mega Constructs. Well, you as actually a, don't as say. As a kid in- who played with Constructs as a, as, a, as a guy who played his Constructs with it as a kid. Uh, yeah, mega, cons- mega Constructs is what we talk about on this podcast. Yeah. Not blocks that you play with. <laughs> yeah. uh, en français, on. You know, ne dit pas the final consonant. So it's mega constru. <laughs> <laughs> um, so if it's uh, if it's turtles all the way down, Andy B points out the purity of the Lego is in question, and uh, Andy B gives a winky emoticon, which I appreciate because emojis happened after I turned thirty, and they are therefore you know alienating and bad. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Did you think the Lego movie was more like Smash Brothers or the Puppet Master series? John C. asks. I've not seen anything from the Puppet Master series, uh, but I do like me some Smash Brothers and appreciate when it gets mentioned. Have any of you guys seen Puppet Master movies? No, I haven't. Well, then let's just skip it. Somebody (laughs) Somebody does a tribute. Clay Schultz talks about how in the Lego movie... There's a discussion. I think this actually is a couple other people talking about this, too. They talk about toys becoming real uh, through the love of people, and they attribute this to Toy Story. And I just want to raise the Velveteen Rabbit up and raise the roof for the Velveteen Rabbit a little bit, which I think of as the OG toys becoming real because people love them story. Uh, And uh, I I remember one of my English teachers in high school hated that story uh, because she saw it as highly problematic from the perspective of an at the time unmarried woman that she would be made real by somebody's love, which is a very good point. But when you read the story as a child, uh, it has a different context, which just sort of teaches you something about readership and how the stories resonate with different groups of people in different ways. And they even have different morals depending on who you are, which is an interesting idea. That, so, you're uh, saying, so you're saying Tilda Swinton shouldn't have published her correspondence with Margaret Cho is what you're saying. <laughs> I'm saying that, wait, wait, wait. So I'm saying that, so was this around the Lego movie or the Toy Story? Or? <laughs> yeah, Margaret Cho was really mad about the, was really mad about the Lego movie. And she <laughs> went on a podcast with Bobby Lee and talked about it until the, I thought it was that Tilda Swinton shouldn't have played both the old man and Mother Blanc in the uh, Suspiria remake, right? Is that what Tilda Swinton? Sh- I, I don't feel qualified to say that Tilda Swinton shouldn't have done anything. Yeah, fair so enough. I know that she's fair, made mistakes, but we've all Re- made mistakes. Remind me, Pete, does the, does the Velveteen Rabbit get uh, put in a bag because of uh, illness or because of bed bugs or because of like tenting the house and forgetting no, to it's take a uh, scarlet food? fever. Oh. Scarlet fever is the reason that the Velveteen Rabbit is going to be burned uh, is because the girl gets scarlet fever and they have to discard all of her possessions. And uh, the Velveteen Rabbit has a bit of an existential crisis and then sees other real rabbits and then recognizes that the love that the Velveteen Rabbit has received is sufficient. Have you considered that if, if your name is Scarlet, every fever you get is a scarlet fever? I wonder if that's how Scarlett Johansson feels about it. I also wonder how many times her parents burned her stuffed animals in response. Hopefully not often. That's, that's a, yeah, that, that would be monstrous parenting. As monstrous as, like, putting all Putting the, the Legos into storage. Yep. <laughs> and and not, not storage. I think someone took issue in the comments. I, 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 we, I don't have this one in our document, but I'm, I think someone took issue with that as being like, oh, putting the Legos in storage. It's like, but no, it's not just putting the Legos away, right? Like, the, the thing the thing that you do with siblings fighting over a toy is you take the toy away and it's like you can either share the toy or no one can play with it you know but that's like that's a sort of normal move but like saying all right i'm going to make you guys both watch as we go down to the public storage 45 minutes away (laughs) 
in the in the office park, you know, and I'm gonna stop at the gate for the guy with the key. I'm gonna open our thing and I'm gonna make you watch me put the the toy that you can't share on a shelf, close the thing, and we are gonna drive forty five minutes home without your toy. And that that's the bad you know, that's the bad part. Come on. That's you know, no, this that's that's torturing children. That's not teaching them anything. People, speaking of forcing people to watch things and torturing them, we did a podcast about the Oscars, which we didn't watch because we didn't want to be forced to. And there was some discussion of the Oscars. Uh, some of it, you know, interesting. Some of it not interesting. Whatever. I always appreciate the banter. But one thing that I, that did stick out to me was, uh, well, Mark, you talked a lot about, I remember why I don't write down a lot of the comments from this, because, Mark, you were heavily engaged in the thread. You talked a lot about Bohemian Rhapsody. And I didn't want to just repeat what you said on this podcast, because it was interesting. Uh, do you oh, want to I touch talk, on that? I, yeah, I talk some about it. I mean, like, so I, I fixate on weird things with the Oscars. Um, and because I'm just constantly obsessed with music, one of the little things I love is what is the choice of music uh, that they play when people come up to accept the award? Um, usually it's a bit from the score of the movie. So Black Panther won a lot of awards. So you got to hear a lot of um, Luka Gorenson's excellent, excellent score come up and this kind of very like triumphant Wakanda fanfare that you hear. So that was pretty great to hear and props to the band for doing that. Um, I, I thought it was really curious about um, the little snippet from the song Bohemian Rhapsody that they played when that movie won, which is the, um, uh, the the guitar solo section from the, the 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 that concludes the end of the first part of Bohemian Rhapsody um, that they had to loop because you know that's the whole thing right you got to have filler music while a bunch of people work their way to the stage and and frankly like you know do something that's not that interesting to watch so they need to give people something interesting to listen to but that's that particular bit of music doesn't end in a way that logically loops and so I went through a couple of suggestions in the comments for of many many other Queen. Uh, music cues that would have uh, been a better choice for that that loop well um don't stop me now we are the champions um i don't know crazy little thing called love right <laughs> like you go down quite a quite a quite a long list there um so it's like like i would love to be a fly in that room though right, with the band and brainstorm okay bohemian rhapsody is dominated for these things we got to prepare something that to play when they win what are we going to do and that came out on top i have to assume maybe it's because like the guitar player wanted to play the ripping solo and they needed to throw him a bone or something like that they don't they don't make these decisions based on the guitar player (laughs) fair enough fair enough (laughs) they don't no they just pull the guitar player off of hollywood boulevard the second before the show began my goodness the whole you know it's what do you call a guy who hangs out with musicians a guitar player no i'm sorry mark i'm Uh, I'm just trolling in in all seriousness right i i assume that there's like a you know like a someone's studio band that was already together and and ready to go and i don't know there's like some negotiation that happens to make everybody happy and that was one of the things that got landed on well i mean the oscars definitely made uh, everybody happy um you know <laughs> this year they really were a, a successful pr effort for the movie i mean you know yes what and the, no yes and no right like people seem to have reacted positively to it there was no host the move along at a faster clip black panther won a lot of stuff uh i mean sure yeah people you know green book remains a very controversial pick um for reasons i, I can't really comment on because i haven't seen it but overall i thought it was received better than it has been in, in recent memory 
hmm. a pretty low bar to leap over, I yeah, think. I mean, uh, the, that's true. I mean, when you consider that the Oscars is actually just like the sales convention of the motion picture business, right? Like, the whole point of this thing is to, like, predispose people to liking movies and and going to them, you know? And, and a, lot of, a lot of other stuff has gotten sort of layered uh, on top of it, but it's a, a three-hour commercial for... for going to yeah. movies and and uh they they don't seem to um they don't seem to want to put a lot of effort into making people like them right yeah what three three act of structure in the comments put it uh so nobody cares about the oscars because the oscars don't care about anybody else why show up to a game that my team isn't even allowed to play in uh, which is, you know, which is fair enough. Which yeah, is fair it's, enough. it's true. They, they, um, they had the, uh, if only that category for best achievement in popular film had gotten through, right? That would have, <laughs> I mean, this, if only it had best climbing a skyscraper, then I would have been on board. <laughs> <laughs> they, uh, yeah, it's a, they, they do seem to, to want to ruin the movie industry. And speaking of things that are ruining the movie industry, <laughs> Pausing only to the meaty podcast. Pausing only to say that we are killing the transitions this week, guys. <laughs> uh, we did a comment. We did a podcast about algorithms, uh, machine algorithmic recommendations, machine learning, uh, and a whole host of related topics. Uh, and Joe Posner wrote in. I read briefly from this comment on an earlier episode, but I'm going to read the whole thing because it's interesting. Joe Posner writes: As a former Netflix employee, I'm going to well actually your comments about their recommender and machine learning algorithms. Well, actually, you were right on all counts. I need to hand wave a bit since while my knowledge of their systems is 10 years out of date, I can't go into all the details, but I can discuss the things that are publicly disclosed or trivially obvious. Their DVD recommendations took a few different things into account. The number of stars you were expected to give it was one, uh, to give a particular movie was one factor. How fast Netflix could ship you that DVD if you put it in your number one slot was another. And what a cost Netflix and licensing fees to ship that movie was another factor. The best recommendation for a user was one that the user was expected to give five stars to, could ship overnight, and that had zero licensing fees. Since nothing was perfect, the level of recommendation for a given movie was a mathematical combination of those and other aspects. This leads to another point that you touched on. The definition of good in any machine learning system is a mathematical representation of how important some human values are decided by the business, whether that's converting future profit to net present value or deciding how people compare on-time airplane arrival with low turbulence and lost luggage, a machine learning optimization requires a human definition of best to compare its calculations against. The input values are also explicitly and implicitly set by human choices. We don't throw number of baseball games played today into machine learning algorithms to optimize mortgage default rates because doing so, A, dramatically increases increases computation time, and B, produces false positives, enough uh, silly attributes, add enough silly attributes to the mix, and by random chance, a few will show a correlation to the best. So humans set the input, which means humans make decisions like we will use the calendar definition of winter months rather than average temperature for that uh, zip code when deciding seasonality. Um, that was a that's a lot that's a lot to digest, but I think that's a that's a, a really good and sort of well uh thought out comment. Thank you, Joe Posner, for sharing all of that, dropping all of that knowledge uh on us. We I we, love the idea. Yeah, that... I exp- I expect that we'll rate your comment five stars. <laughs> Hmm. I, I love the idea that at some point the machine algorithm is going to figure out that 
more mortgages are sold on days where lots of baseball games are played on average, probably because of the weather being good, right? Because baseball games don't get played when there are big storms. So on the day where there are no big storms anywhere in the United States would lead to the most baseball games and the most mortgages being signed. So therefore, the machine learning algorithm might recommend that we vastly increase the number of baseball games <laughs> in order to increase the number of mortgages that are sold. Uh, I, I like that idea very much. I'm sure it would they would figure it out after a little while. But that's not the way to go. But that's a delight. I also had no idea that Netflix was biased, though it makes perfect sense that Netflix was biased towards recommending. And I can't imagine they're the only ones who do this biased towards recommending the cheapest possible thing to you that they have. I mean, it makes so much sense and it's so obvious, but it never occurred to me before, which is rare, I think, that an obvious that like something like that jumps out and it's like, wow. Have you searched for a, literally any commodity household item on Amazon recently? No, it's, I never do. I barely a, use Amazon. It's a yeah. wasteland. Search for yeah. like uh, – and I'm thinking of like kitchen shears or – extension cord or you know i did search for a plumber snake recently because we have a clogged bathroom sink and i had no idea it doesn't look good why are you saying that the ones that they recommend to me are going to be off-brand and terrible yeah exactly are going to be uh are going to be that um are going to be things that have hacked the amazon algorithm either with false reviews or with you know bizarre search and bizarre like titles to optimize against their search engine or are going to be i mean you know amazon's latest move i was not their latest move i mean i I don't know their latest move, but their move like between six to nine months ago is to create house brands of things and, you know, put those to the top of their their lists and recommendations and, uh, you know, cut out the middleman and capture a lot of that, you know, capture a lot of that margin uh, as the retailer. Which uh, you know they don't get to uh, they don't get to capture when they are um, retailing something that they bought from a wholesaler. Definitely. Now I'm just looking at vacuum cleaners and I'm noticing, oh, they're so Amazon's choice for the best vacuum cleaner might just be one that they just have a lot of hanging around that they're trying to get rid of and know that they can ship to me quickly, but also has a reasonable likelihood of me liking it. Oh, man. Yeah. So I'll just jump in here um, away from the, the user comments for just a second because I um, I wasn't on this episode and uh, really enjoyed listening to it and think it's like a really super important conversation that um, that I'm glad we're having here. I'm glad that kind of like, you know, the entire Internet and, and nation is having with itself about you know the power of these algorithms and these and these tech monopolies and the the, the vastly unintended consequences that um, that are spiraling out from them. Um, like, but when you kind of abstract it all the way up, like you know, what is the kind of the ur algorithm that has been corrupted because we're not optimizing for the right thing? It's like I guess American democracy, right? <laughs> when you say like things like the United States Senate and the Supreme Court are things that subvert the will of the people and gerrymandering and things like that, right? Then you know you you set up a, a system where um, algorithms can optimize for maximum private profit above all sorts of public goods, like not radicalizing people with uh, ISIS or um, you know white nationalist content. Um, and so, therefore, when uh, you know the algorithm tries to optimize for profit, and it serves up all this extremist, sticky stuff, and then traps people in it, and that's super bad. So it's like uh, you guys didn't probably for good reasons didn't dive too deep into that. Um, on that podcast, but I wanted to get that idea out there. I mean, to, to, to like loosen that up a little bit and to kind of call it in a question a little bit, or at least to, to explore it a little bit. I like the idea that you're pointing out that 
that there are things that are established because of kind of over you know conventional wisdom over time, or because there was a particular negotiation that went a particular way at some point in the past, and that has proceeded largely out of force of habit, right, or the difficulty to change things related to loss aversion and and things like that. People people are have a certain amount of inertia around these sorts of things, but that when you start using machine learning to optimize in line with these things that have been created with sort of implicit assumptions about what they do, the machine, the algorithms can reveal that the implicit, some of the problems with the implicit assumptions might be another way to put it. I don't, I don't really like this whole idea of like, oh, it's bad to try to maximize profit because it's just like, not because I necessarily approve of profit in itself, though I, it's full disclosure, like I don't mind making money. Um, and I'm skeptical of, of central planning and economics. Uh, those two things don't mean that I don't favor, you know, very generous sorts of uh, mutual collaborative efforts economically and such. But but just the idea of like, there are obvious reasons why something like the Senate and its relationship with the population is not really optimal for any one particular reason. It's not the, the system that was set up originally where we really didn't t- trust people at all and the Senate was going to be selected by state legislatures, right? And it's not the system that people would favor where the Senate is a product of popular votes either. It's a weird sort of half compromise between the two where you started liberalizing the idea of the original Senate and you haven't yet arrived at this idea of a kind of full popularly elected Senate. And yeah, there are sort of aspects of it that are countervailing interests to things like sort of direct proportional democratic uh, representation, such as holding the country together, right? And, and the idea that the country is made up of states and such. But it is interesting to think that if you run a whole bunch of different sorts of algorithmically assisted campaigns to win the Senate in various places, in the aggregate of all of those things doesn't necessarily this would may perhaps be a problem for the general political discourse of the country because it reflects all the ways in which the way the Senate is set up is a problem for the political discourse in the country. I mean, that's one way. The other way to look at it is that if this isn't an unintended consequence of trying to set up uh, an algorithm to optimize for any particular goal, but that it is an end. It is an end in itself or not an end in itself, but it's a very simple means to an end to merely upset people. Right. And like just upsetting people is the thing that the algorithm is doing. And it is doing it with various sorts of other goals in mind. And and so the main being, uh, you know, engagement of the user base and disengagement from institutions that are in opposition to the person running the 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 thing, the traps. Right. Is that the idea? Um, but I know it is. It is interesting to think that, like, there's all sorts of conventional wisdom that you might think of, like, oh, you know, if we. If we do X, then, you know, people will do Y. And you sort of assume that that's always going to be the case. And you have institutions that are set up to run in accordance with that. And then you actually, you know, make a robot live that life for a thousand years and see what decision it comes to. And it turns out to be different than your expectations. That's Um, a that's a great Black Mirror episode. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, the, this whole thing is all black. Yeah, exactly. Black Mirror episodes you know, all the way down. Yeah, exactly. Where John Hamm lives in. A, I'm sorry. No, no spoilers. All right. Jens writes in a couple of good, a uh, couple of good anecdotes. I'm just going to read these into the record quickly because they are diverting. And uh, uh, Jens, psychi- a psychologist working in research, so statistics is uh, not not only interesting but also you know uh, expert level stuff. Uh, a personal anecdote. It's hard to over state how much of a phenomenon and how sudden Harry Potter was back in the early 2000s, especially after the release of the first movie. Amazon was already a thing, almost exclusively for books, though. Side note, uh, my Matt Matt Rather's uh, Amazon purchase history goes back to 1997. 
I think I bought uh, I bought Brazil on uh, VHS tape. Um, something like my first Amazon purchase. Amazon was already a thing almost exclusively for books, though. And I've noticed, uh, I noticed at the time that no matter what item I looked at, its algorithm recommended one of the available Harry Potter books. In that case, the algorithm was clearly overwhelmed by the increased based pro- uh, the increased base probability of someone buying Harry Potter books, which overrode the information that they had on file from my prior consumer history. And I would add, Jens, from uh, what they infer your preferences would be based on what you're looking at at the moment. The same thing must certainly occur in the context of Netflix as well. My main reason for watching Marie Kondo was that everyone else was watching it. Recommending the show to me at a certain time, regardless of my actual interest, does not seem unreasonable. So in a way, drink, the algorithm needs to have a loophole built in that will lead it to ignore its own mechanism if something becomes popular enough to override it. Um, we could stop there, but I'm going to read the second, the, second, uh, the second one as well. Similarly, it reminds me of a weird story out of Germany. Like in many large cities, you can buy merchandise that says Hamburg uh, in the eponymous city. Um, it's an eponymous shirt, not an eponymous... Uh, never mind. At one point, uh, a producer of tourist beanies erroneously printed Hombrug with the, the U and the R switched. Unexpectedly, people loved this, presumably as a sarcastic comment on producer-slash-tourism culture, and bought them up so that soon enough, they had to produce deliberately misspelled Hambrug merchandise in order to meet the demand. My point is, I don't believe there's anything that any behavioral prediction algorithm could have done to see this coming. A mechanism that expected people to act reasonably in any sort of way would have missed this trend and subsequently would have left money on on the table. Thank you again. You think they yeah, teach that's... machine learning at Hogwarts? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, they do. It's called Muggle Studies, right? That you have to learn how to use a, a parking meter or something like that. If you're, uh, <laughs> if you're, uh... I didn't read the Harry Potter books. I've only seen the movies. Is there really a Muggle Studies department where you learn how to use a parking meter? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Were you learning- I was thinking more of like like uh, uh, creating an algorithm to I don't know come up with new spells, um, and it just goes horribly awry. But by the way, uh, reflecting this whole conversation, I've been trying to find a picture online of a Hamburg shirt, <sighs> and Google is so insistent that I actually mean Hamburg that it refuses to show me any, and as such is demonstrating and proving uh, the uh, the point from Jen's here, which is a delight, I think. <laughs> That the algorithm needs to get wise to the things that people do that are unpredictable until they happen. So um, there is a, I mean, there is a uh, thing to be said about um, those still recommending Harry Potter or uh, tidying up or whatever. Um, I was listening to a podcast this week and someone talked about Marvel movies as the new sports uh, being like, this is the thing that all my friends have to uh, have to watch because it's what we talk about, you know, um, the same way, like, you know, home team baseball or something like that might be water cooler conversation on, uh, you know, the day after the game, right? Like, and you, you do, if you want, look, if you want to make a pop culture podcast for 11 years, guys, you gotta watch some, uh, you gotta watch some Netflix shows that you might not rate five stars. If you, uh, you know, even if you, you, um, 
you know, you, you, you got to spend your time doing that, uh, even if they're not things that you would like uh, normally. Um, all right. We move on now to uh, our last episode, our most recent episode. I mean, not our last, not our final episode, just our most recent one uh, on Captain Marvel. Three Act Destruction writes in, a noticeable gap in the movie's social awareness is its treatment of race. It's strange watching a protagonist be surrounded by a primarily black supporting cast and get caught up in a literal race war, uh, that is to say between the, the Kree and the Skrulls, and never have the film comment on this in any way. It's especially strange to see that race war be subsumed into a message about feminism instead of, well race. Meanwhile, Nick Fury continues not to exist in the same part of the MCU wherein Killmonger and T'Challa are discussing the race politics of his country. I mean, don't get me wrong, it all works. It just seems like it shouldn't upon reflection. Um, I guess I'll read in Clay Schultz's uh, uh, comment as well, and then we can, we can wrap on this. Uh, I agree that the lack of of racial commentary is unusual. In 1995, the U.S. would be only a few uh, years removed from the L.A. riots and the O.J. Simpson trial. Uh, Now, here is a race of green shapeshifter refugees and no one comments on this. It might be the result of most characters being unfamiliar with American politics. Captain Marvel, the Skrull, and the Kree wouldn't be aware of race politics at this point, but Fury and Maria should be painfully aware of the issue. Uh, My memory of the 90s is that there was a huge effort to avoid talking about race and that the X-Files was connected to this problem. The X-Files became popular in a decade when UFO sightings were popular. There was a quasi-news show called Sightings, after all. Every month there was a videotape of UFOs hovering over America. Meanwhile, video evidence of police brutality against minorities was rare. Fast forward to 2019, when we all have video recording devices on our person at our times, UFO videos are rare. And videos of police shooting shooting unarmed minorities... uh, are on the rise. The 90s was a decade where it was easier to get Americans believe, to believe in lizard people infiltrating the government than believing racial inequality still exists, and this film endorses that belief. I wouldn't agree with that. That final statement that is yeah. is where is where we part company for me. Anyway, well, but, uh, the biggest the biggest place where I part company is just the uh, like I just it's. There's also no we're in L.A. in the 90s in this movie and there's no Tupac. There's no Ice Cube. There's no rap of any kind, which right as far as I remember, is there any there's a lot of 90s music in Captain Marvel, but there's no N.W.A. Yeah. as far as I remember. No. Right. And that's oh, and a, and Snoop Dogg, it's, it's, Doggy Style. In Los Angeles. Yeah, right? Doggy, like, doggy like, Style yeah. had come out at this point. It wasn't, I yeah. mean, even if you couldn't, there, there are ways that you could go uh, other than grunge, which is not connected with Los Angeles, really. You know, like there, there are uh, ways that you could go if, you, if NWA is, is even a little too provocative for a PG 13 movie. Like Doggy Style had come out at this point, you know, and right, uh, right. Um, it's, it's hard being, uh, you know, Captain D A N V. <laughs> well, what I just think is that when I th- I think about the '90s as a time when uh, the discussion of race was definitely happening often, uh, but it was the kind of thing where it was it was colored by and again colored of course it's going it's going to be different for a lot of different people. So everybody has different sorts of experiences of this sort of thing. From my experience, in terms of my memory, I feel like it was colored by the idea of like. There are people that what are we going to expose children to? How much of what's happening in the world can we afford to have be part of society, quote unquote society, because the children will be bothered by it. Right. Like think of the children. 
It, it, this is the decade of, you know, two live crew getting the parental advisory sticker and the idea that really serious discussion about the kinds of things that are happening in, you know, racial violence in the country was also falling under the rubric of, well, we can't talk about that because it's bad for the kids to know that there's violence. Of course, the kids are confronting the violence every day. I mean, this is the decade that produced Boys in the Hood. I'm I mean, not, it depends which yeah. it depends which kids, right? Like, well, yeah, the that's kids, really what. Yeah, the yeah. kids whose whose uh, fragile sensibilities are we're, we're worried about are not the kids who are con- confronting the violence. Those kids are are those kids live in different neighborhoods. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I'm not really comfortable in this idea that 90s culture isn't involved in a conversation about. I mean, the L.A. riots had just happened. I mentioned this in the thread also, which is that it's really interesting that we're in L.A. with this black cop, basically. And he doesn't mention that nothing about the L.A. riots ever comes up. Nothing about O.J. ever comes up. Although we might be are we pre O.J. at this point or is O.J. like full on happening? Um, Actually, by the time the by the time the. Captain Marvel takes place. OJ had happened. That was I. That was I was eight. wondering, man. I was the in the OJ. Grade, so it's ninety ninety four, ninety three, yeah. or ninety four. So the OJ trial was currently going on during the events of Captain Marvel, and nobody talks about it once, which is the least plausible thing about a movie where a woman shoots lasers out of her hands, right? Because everybody <laughs> was talking about OJ, right? Like for freaking two years, all people were talking about was OJ. Uh, granted, they were talking sideways about it a lot, and a lot of people weren't talking straight on about what was going on, but uh yeah, I mean, just I, I thought it would have been hilarious if the events of Captain Marvel had happened concurrently with the Bronco chase, but they were obviously not going to go for that one. If like if Captain Marvel and the Skrulls are like chasing each other down the freeway. By the way, there's another unrealistic thing. You have a movie taking place in Los Angeles where people have to do a chase across Los Angeles and they use a train. <laughs> Right, like when when Los a- when car chases in Los Angeles are perhaps the single most filmed kind of scene in the history of movies, right? Like, is uh, is I don't know. I, I I just there's a lot going on with regards to Captain Marvel in 1995 that I think is is interesting to kind of parse out because you also get into the idea of my idea of the 90s is not the same as your idea of the 90s. My idea of Los Angeles is not the same as your idea of Los Angeles, right? Uh, Matt, you know the geography of Los Angeles. Where in the geography of Los Angeles? Does Captain Marvel? I do, like- guys. I, I I just I need to update you. I've moved from Culver City to Brentwood. Now to get from Culver City to Brentwood, <laughs> you take you can get on the ten at Overland or Robertson, depending on the time of day, right? What you- are you doing here? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Pete. I was waiting for California. Californians <laughs> reference, Pete. Oh, whoa. oh, Captain Marvel. What are you doing here? Well, I teleported in from. Uh, from from Planet Cree, and then I got on the one, which I took down to the ten and over to the four hundred five. Sorry, Matt, you were you were well, describing the. It's important when you say the one that you're talking about. Uh, you're talking about California Route One, State Route One, which is the Pacific Coast Highway, and not U.S. Highway One, which is the Atlantic Coast Highway. Um, the corresponding road in California is U.S. Highway One Hundred One. Um, <laughs> Well, okay, but where is the blockbuster in Captain Marvel, and is there a uh, payphone in the parking lot? Yeah, she she sort of gets uh, like she kind of lands in in proto big box store Los Angeles, right? In the kind of the in sort of sprawly Los Angeles, and not in the more recent phenomenon of kind of denser uh, built up Los Angeles, where literally everything is is being knocked down to to make way for luxury condo developments. Mm-hmm. Um, that which is a more recent phenomenon in in the city. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I I looked at 
the Los Angeles and Captain Marvel the way anyone from New Orleans must look at New Orleans in any movie ever, right? Like, it's just not, it wasn't really, it wasn't, it was a notional space, you know? It wasn't, it it wasn't really the thing. Would, and I mean, to a certain extent, the Avengers movies that take place in New York or the parts of them that take place in New York take place in the same kind of notional New York, right? It's not, yeah. you know, uh, th- there's no commentary on, on Robert Moses, right? Like uh, um, in in any of those movies like Robert Caro hasn't even made a single cameo in any of the Avengers <laughs> movies. And that's, I think the, the biggest travesty of them all. <laughs> There's so Can many go- travesties. Go ahead, Mark. There indeed. Can we go back to this comment about like, you know, Nick Fury, um, uh, not engaging in the racial politics of, uh, of this. I, I think like my, um, overall take on this and I guess I almost feel like uh, obligated to, to weigh in as like the minority you know, person of color on this podcast, sure, but it's sure. like, um, th- you know, these sorts of stories, they can't do everything all the time. It sounds really obvious to say, but you know, I, I, I want to put that out there. And the other thing as well is that, you know, the character of Nick Fury, because it's played by Samuel L. Jackson, the black man, uh, it does not carry with necessarily carry with him the obligation to be engaging with race at every opportunity, um, that presents itself. Um, I, 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 I'm choosing my words carefully here, like because I, I don't want to entirely dismiss the notion that there's something missing from this movie, or in, and generally speaking about the Marvel movies and d- discourse around race. I mean, Black Panther was, you know, clearly like, uh, you know, filled a void uh, that, um, you know, it's a scratch an itch uh, that 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 existed. But um, I, I don't want to carry out that obligation and spin it out to a a place where. Um, where it's ultimately going to be counterproductive to the stories that they are trying to tell. And, you know, again, at the risk of stating the obvious, the Captain movie Marvel is the Captain Marvel movie is much more about gender than anything else. And um, I don't necessarily know if it has an obligation to check off like all the identity box boxes. The only thing for me, I know what you're saying, Mark, and I know you you can't do everything uh, for everyone. Um, But the one thing that I would say is that the lack of discussion of race for me influences the sense of place in the movie. But that's what Matt already said, right? Which is that this is a movie that does not have a more intimate sort of relationship with Los Angeles than any other movie. Um, yeah. It yeah, doesn't and, have an yeah. intimate sense of relationship with place or time, which is, we, yeah. we talked about that plenty. Which um, is weird for a more time travel it's, movie, it's right? How, like, it's, not, yeah. it's, how, it's how people in Chicago felt about widows, right? Yeah. <laughs> I don't think anybody, I didn't hear anybody in Chicago, maybe, I'm trying to think if anybody from Chicago talked to me about Widows. But yeah, sure, because Widows – well, Widows has a very strong sense of place of taking place in Chicago, but it's the kind that's like really difficult to deal with and like people were turned off by and didn't like, right? Because it's about how everybody is kind of miserable to be living there, which is not usually the narrative that you get for the Midwest because even if you're miserable, you're not supposed to say it. You're supposed to smile and be nice about it, right? Because um, they made Chicago look like Baltimore and uh, – Although I'm not sure whether it was unfaithful or not, uh, because, of course, I haven't had that experience of being in that part of Chicago or whatever, anything along those lines. So it's interesting. You know what else can't be all things for all people is this podcast. Uh, (laughs) 
but we've tried to incorporate as many uh, comments as we we could into this hour. Um, we're really grateful that uh, people you know take the time to to write in. We're glad to engage in those conversations ourselves in the comment threads, and it's very nice to be able to highlight them in the show. So keep on writing in. I'm not sure what we might have said in this episode that that uh, sparks your interest or curiosity, but if you'd like to to head over to overthinking.com slash OTIP uh, 599 OTIP and then the number of this episode 599 uh, you will find the show notes and you can uh, leave a leave a comment there and we will read them on a future episode of uh, of listener feedback and that's uh, uh, maybe we'll we'll do this once every six weeks or something like that to clear out to clear out the backlog uh, so that we are doing justice to the incredible comments that our community leaves thank you very much for listening thank you Pete and Mark for podcasting thank you members for supporting us you can become a member as well by going to overthinkingit.com slash join We'll be back next week with more Overthinking It podcast. Until then, visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve I just realized that I called Captain Marvel a time travel movie when it is, in fact, a period piece. And I just thought, in a way, isn't every period piece a time travel movie? (laughs) And that made me think about how the Downton Abbey movie is coming out in September. And that's going to be a time travel movie, people. I think they're all time travel movies at this point because they travel through time. They travel. If there's any other, if there's any other qualification for being a time travel movie than traveling through time, then I don't want to hear it. I mean, I'm- Lord, Lord, Lord Grantham, <laughs> we have to go back to the Abbey. <laughs>